Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. The Bowery Boys, episode 139, The Brooklyn Academy of Music. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. We're getting out of Manhattan. Imagine. This particular, we're staying here physically, but we are getting out of here with our topic. Heading over to Sisterboro, Brooklyn, for a tale of one of America's oldest continually operating performance arts centers, that would be the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Did you just say one of America's oldest? Because I saw it specifically a few times as the oldest performing arts complex in the United States. Well, it's older than any existing sports organization. It's older than most civic institutions, with only places like the New York Historical Society being a little bit older, but it has been around for over 150 years. Since that first performance in 1861. The Brooklyn Academy of Music, or BAM, as we shall be using as shorthand for most of this show. As we shall be shouting and exclaiming (laughs) at each other. BAM! One way to look at it is that it's a little bit like Brooklyn's Lincoln Center, a little bit. It's also a little bit like Carnegie Hall. It's also one part the public theater and its love of the avant-garde and Shakespeare, and even a little bit like the Angelica Movie Theater and having one of Brooklyn's most popular art house cinemas. And yet it must be noted again, Greg, that it's been around longer than any of those institutions. Yes, it has indeed. So maybe they're actually quite a bit like BAM. This is also about something we have not touched too much, which is the rivalry that occurred in the 19th century between Manhattan and Brooklyn. And it also brings up the rivalry, if you will, between high and low arts. And we have dozens of bold-faced names to provide to you. Uh, many of the great entertainers have passed through here. If you're interested in any way in any of the arts, in any of the entertainments, you're going to want to stick around. So find your seats as we take on the history of the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Oh, 
All right, Greg. Well, before we just jump into the history of BAM, maybe you can situate us. I would consider, you know, the Brooklyn Academy of Music's location to be pretty central in Brooklyn. Indeed. I would say it's the heart of Brooklyn. Many people would consider it that. It's the main structure, the main concert house here, which the current one dates from 1908. It sits on Lafayette Avenue, right off of Flatbush Avenue. We would say it's in Fort Greene, mm-hmm. the neighborhood of Fort Greene. But it's by all of these other major attractions, I guess, in Brooklyn, this whole cluster is sometimes called Atlantic Center. It sits right next to the Williamsburg Savings Bank Building, which is today the second tallest building in Brooklyn. And Atlantic Center, which is, of course, that mall of all various shops and things. With a Target and a Chuck E. Cheese. A Chuck E. Cheese is there, Guitar Center. One could go conceivably go from BAM to Chuck E. Cheese afterwards. I'm you know? sure it happens all the time. <laughs> and then most notably, if we were recording this in 2012, it also sits very near the Barclays Center, which is Brooklyn's brand new gigantic basketball stadium and for concerts and everything, and will be the future home of the Brooklyn Nets basketball team. Now here at BAM, virtually all forms of performance art are presented here. I don't know, in like the past couple of years, I mean, I've seen movies there. I, I saw The Artist a couple months ago. Plays. I saw Kate Blanchett there, an mm. incredible version of A Streetcar Named Desire. She was Blanche Dubois. There's tons of dance performances, a huge swath of entertainment here. It's, things are always going on. Now, of course, there's that main building, which is today called the Peter J. Sharp Building. Peter J. Sharp was a hotel owner. Mr. Sharp is notably the, was the owner of the Hotel Carlisle oh. um, on the Upper East Side. His foundation donated a lot of money to BAM, so the building is named after him. They also have another theater, though, just a little bit down the street, a smaller stage called the Harvey Theater, and it's set up in a very old movie house. It used to be called the Majestic Theater, but today they call it the Harvey Theater. And the theater is named after Harvey Lichtenstein, who led BAM for over three decades and was instrumental in its growth in the 20th century, and we'll get into that, Mm -hmm. of course, later on in the show. BAM's first performance was in eight. 1861, and it was not at this current location. We will explain where its first location was. But since we're starting in the mid-19th century, I should preface by saying that New York and Brooklyn during this period of time were two separate cities, two very large cities that sat right next to each other. Brooklyn was the fourth largest city at this particular time. In the United States. In, In the United States, right. To start the story here, though, we're going to take a ferry back to Manhattan because... Manhattan had an Academy of Music that predated Brooklyn's Academy of Music. Now, since the end of the Revolutionary War and the beginning of the 19th century, New York was fast growing to become, of course, this major capital of finance, quickly became the city that was filled with the trappings of old wealth because people had lived here by that time for over a century, much longer. And so you actually had families that were firmly established here, very, very wealthy. Old money. Very, very old old cobwebby money. With the city becoming more grandiose, people were desperate to sort of show off this wealth and to create exclusive activities for those of their particular kind, the upper crust. Um, The easiest way, in in terms of a way that would incorporate both men and women of the upper class, Mm -hmm. would be high culture, would be the performing arts, would be one way to, of course, you know, ostensibly, people would go to enjoy these performing arts, but it would really be to sort of 
hang out and mingle and to network and to show off your fancy threads, and essentially. we should probably add that this wasn't being invented across, you know, the, the river in <clears throat> New York. They were glancing across the ocean to, to the old continent and seeing the very same thing happening. And reflecting what they enjoyed over in Europe. Uh, one of those things, of course, being opera. Um, which could be appreciated, of course, by all types of people from any strata. You didn't need to be rich. The desire to build an opera house didn't really come from enjoying the music, per se. It came from enjoying those whose company was kept during the opera. New York had a variety of different spaces for opera in the first part of the 19th century. The very first theater was the Park Theater over on Park Row, which opened in 1798. In 1824, there was the Castle Garden, which was the old Castle Clinton, that fort that was the tip of Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Then by the 1830s, you had the what has become most notorious, the Astor Opera House. Unfortunately, its reputation became a little bit marred in the late 1840s with a riot that broke out here uh, that basically divided along class and ethnic lines. But by this time, of course, there was a new nexus for the wealthy lifestyle here, and it was over around Union Square. 14th Street and Broadway. So it made sense to then build a new opera house that would be built around there. In 1854, this Academy of Music was built on 14th Street, right off of Union Square at the corner of Irving Place. Mm -hmm. So really, that's just one block over, one block east. It would, of course, become the finest opera house in America. Tammany Hall, the actual hall in, in which the Democratic political machine met, would be built next door so that you had this perhaps alarming combination of money and power situated within walking or singing distance from each other. In its heyday, it presented the American debut of a lot of very famous operas, including Aida, Carmen. There were also grand balls uh, where people would dress up in their finest and drink champagne and dance. These, over time, would get a little bit seedier, so that by the time of the Civil War, you had a sort of naughtier version of these respectable balls, which they liked to call the French balls. Oh. Uh, masquerade parties here that had a lot of uh, prostitution. Unfortunately for the Academy of Music here, on top of those kind of scandalous events that were occurring there, there was new money coming into New York. So you had the Vanderbilts and the Morgans, and they were feeling really left out of this sort of crusty old world opera house, but they still wanted their own opera house as well. So in 1883, up further uptown was the Metropolitan Opera House. It became the new place for the wealthy to go and hang out and see these fine opera And which shows. year was that? 1883. So at this point, BAM had Has, been... Uh, was started, was yes. Totally established and had been running for 20 years. Right. But the Academy was deteriorating rapidly. In fact, it became an old vaudeville house Ooh. and then was demolished with Tammany Hall in 1926 to make way for the Con Edison building, which... Uh, with that clock tower on top of it. Absolutely. So that's where that's where this used to be. So that's the preface for Brooklyn's Academy of Music. Well, before there was the Brooklyn Academy of Music, 
there was something called the Philharmonic Society of Brooklyn. And you have to understand a little bit of the history of the Philharmonic Society to understand BAM because it really drove the formation and the creation of BAM. It was formed in 1857 and it held concerts at the Athenium in Brooklyn Heights. The Athenium. Which was the largest concert venue in Brooklyn. Right. The Athenium. Sounds like a noble place. Well, it was, after all, named after Athena, of course, the Greek god. <laughs> of wisdom. This building was constructed at the corner of Clinton and Atlantic uh, in 1852. It was intended to be a sort of respite for academic and relaxation pursuits for young men. Now, there were three floors. On the first floor, you could buy things that might inspire you to create or reflect, such as pens and notebooks <laughs> and other supplies, you know, to, to scribble down your lofty thoughts. Mm -hmm. On the second floor, there was a lending library and a reading room where you could read newspapers from across the country, which was a great new concept. You know, this was right when the libraries were also getting started as right. well. Mm -hmm. So to be able to go in and to read newspapers from Chicago was, was a great thing. And on the third floor, there was a 2,000-seat hall for lectures and concerts. And it was here where the Philharmonic Society would hold their first concerts. And as I said, the building opened in 1852. The Philharmonic Society would hold their concerts here until 1861, when a new, better-located concert hall pulled the society away from this Athenium and into downtown Brooklyn right. Heights. So this would have been an intellectual focal point for Brooklyn, it sounds oh, like. It, just, it sounds like an a intellectual mall. All sorts of different things going right, on. Right, and you would pay for, I think, six months or for a year's subscription access to the library. and We would have so been there. We would, I would have been pursuing lofty ideals in this building. And a side note, Greg, because we're already like on the side, <laughs> the Athenium, the Athenium, it was demolished in 1942, and in its place today stands... Mm-hmm. That Key Foods. A Key... F oh, Key Foods. This that's is in my current hood. neighborhood. Right. Yeah, so that's that's where I get my, right. you know, my Ben Jerry's. <laughs> at the, at the, oh, how was, far we've fallen. I used, well, one really, could, I mean, it's still the first floor, you know, before they were get, buying pens and such. One could get intellectual satisfaction, and now you can just get frozen yogurt. <laughs> So this other building that I mentioned that had drawn the Philharmonic Society away in 1861 was, of course, the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Now, rewinding just a few years to 1858, there had been a meeting at the Polytechnic Institute of the Philharmonic Society where they decided to construct a new building, which would be, quote, a new cultural center for all of Brooklyn. The next year in 1859, they incorporated the Brooklyn Academy of Music, and dedicated it to the, quote, purpose of encouraging and cultivating a taste for music, literature, and the arts. Did you notice anything missing from that lineup? I said music, literature, and the arts. How about dramas? Theater. Theater. Yes. So theater was not included in these lofty pursuits. No, because theater was still not necessarily seen as something lofty that the higher classes would really want to partake in. Common. But now getting back to the new BAM building, it was located just a few blocks away at 176 Montague Street between Clinton and Court 
And this made a lot of sense. This is where the wealthy Brooklynites and the old Brooklyn families were were living. And many of them were were patrons of the Academy, giving a lot of money for its construction. I mean, what's interesting about Brooklyn Heights, generally speaking, is most of the homes that are around are still from this period. So Thankfully, many yeah. of the people who lived in the houses that currently exist were the first audience members at the Academy of Music. And, and bought subscriptions for the first year and gave a lot of money so that this building could be constructed. The building that was designed by Leopold Eidlitz, who was born in Prague in the 1820s and died in 1908 in New York. He was famous for designing all kinds of buildings. He designed New York State's Capitol. He completed the Tweed Courthouse, Mm -hmm. and he constructed P.T. Barnum's house in Bridgeport, Connecticut, Iranistan. Wow. So was, did it have a Iranian theme that ran through it? I'm, if it's P.T. Barnum... Did we get into this in the P.T. Barnum <laughs> I podcast? I don't remember. I'll have to identify some photos and put it on the blog. I yes. find that incredibly unusual. But the building, anyway, the Brooklyn Academy of Music's original building on Montague Street was constructed in a Victorian Gothic brick style. It contained a theater and a concert hall, along with some other rooms, and it could seat 2,500 people. Get this, a platform could then be constructed over the seats so that they could have balls and gala events. Now, opening night in January of 1861, following a concert, S.B. Chittenden, who was the president of the directorate, of the Brooklyn Academy of Music was quoted in the New York Times as leaping to the stage and proclaiming that no one of us, meaning the the directors who constructed the theater, Mm -hmm. purposed to build a theater, nor do we purpose to allow this building to be used for theatrical purposes. So for this opening night, there were a lot of like Italian and German arias, operettas, I guess, performed. In the middle of this, he then jumps up on the stage and essentially says, you will not see... Theater. Any theater on right. here. And like you Shakespeare. basically pulled the most theatrical move ever. <laughs> Stop the show dead Pre- in its tracks. One of the greatest performances who have ever been on the stage. Again, signaling, of course, this contrast between high art and low art. The only problem for him is that, of course, they needed to sell tickets at the Brooklyn yeah. Academy of Music, and arias don't always fill those 2,500 seats I just mentioned. Well, he had a lot of objections, apparently, because one of the very first operas that was supposed to be performed was La Traviata, but... They thought that was a little bit sympathized too much, a little bit with French courtesans. Mm, Risqué. Yeah, so, but obviously plays would soon arrive to the Academy of Music very early. What happened to Chittenden? Well, Chittenden, despite his stellar performance on opening night, (laughs) only lasted two more days. He and another board member parted ways with the Academy and... Believe it or not, by the next week, they were presenting a horse trainer on stage and selling the whole place out. A horse, like the horse whisperer? Would it be that kind of thing, like horse tricks? On this, horse tricks, yes. On this hallowed Equine. stage of high art. Yes. Equestrian trickery. They made hay of that whole high art business, didn't they? Mm-hmm. Now, it's opening in 1861. A little bit of a tense time to be opening a gigantic stage um, um, with the dawning of the Civil War. They became involved in the war effort in a very unique way. If you remember from our episode 128 on the 
on the hoaxes and conspiracies uh, the, during the Civil War. We talked about New York having a sanitary fair, and they had the famous Knickerbocker Kitchen, right. which was how they made money for the Sanitary Commission of the United States, which was sort of the precursor of the Red Cross, basically. Well, Brooklyn actually had their own sanitary fair. They actually had it before New York did. On February 22nd of 1964, and they raised over $400,000, which is an incredible sum of money back in mid-19th century dollars here. Prominent Brooklyn women sat behind tables and sold handmade products. I mean, this is such a thing that would happen in Brooklyn today. Like, do-it-yourself markets, uh, handmade woven items. Artisanal charcuterie. <laughs> exactly. I mean, and these, these ladies were doing it a century and a half earlier. Wow. Yeah, you had like a dizzing array of items on, on opening night. The Brooklyn Daily Eagle noted, quote, that the academy was filled with rich goods and bulky wares, tea sets and afghans medallion carpets and wax dolls baskets of flowers and miniature ferry boats baby shoes and old gentlemen's shirts so just imagine this entire place just filled like a flea market essentially there was a gigantic fair outside of montague street and there were surrounding buildings that were even constructed for the fair and they even had their own theme restaurant tom now in new york they would do the knickerbocker kitchen with like Dutch themed right, foods. Right, I remember. We rattled off the whole menu, if <laughs> oh, I recall. Yeah, it was quite delicious. Well, the ladies of Brooklyn had the New England kitchen, where the theme would be a little bit more of Revolutionary War oh. era, the types of foods that you would eat in between battling the British. Mm. Boston baked beans, perhaps? Well, uh, most likely, I'm sure. They even had, I guess what I would call this a flirtation post office, where it was a actual post office that was set up where men could send messages to women that they saw at the fair. They could write these messages, turn them into the workers at the post office, which were all women. Those women would choose their favorite messages and then pin them up on boards. And so all the ladies could then come by and see what handsome suitor had written them a little note. I think, <laughs> I think I went to some dances like that in college <laughs> I think about I went 150 to, years later. I think I went to one about a year ago. <laughs> Now, there's other less savory connections to the war here. One that many New York theaters had at the time, and that would be, of course, hosting performances by a very grand actor of the day, John Wilkes Booth. Mm-hmm. In October of 1863, Booth starred in Shakespeare's Richard III. Here was on a well-received performance, but then shortly afterwards, he starred in another play called The Marble Heart. Believe it or not, after it left the Brooklyn Academy of Music... Wilkes and the Marble Heart, then the next month, restaged the same play at the Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C., which is, of course, where he would assassinate President Abraham Lincoln. So this original Academy of Music would delight Brooklynites here for over four decades in this location with classical performances, soliloquies, all sorts of lectures. I had a blast going through the archives of the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, just looking for random shows that you know were happening here. For instance, in October of 1877, there was something called the Grand Magical Seance, featuring, quote, illusions and delusions of science, wonderful dexterities, transformations, the Indian box trick, Ooh. and the Hindu basket mystery. It makes perfect sense to me that they were selling out that theater. They were, yeah, they would, anything that would bring in a crowd at this point. Um, With the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge in 1883, um, after the big fireworks celebration, they had a big evening reception here for President Chester A. Arthur and New York governor at the time, 
and future president, Grover Cleveland. The following year, Mark Twain uh, appeared here during one of his legendary series of lectures and entertained people from from the Academy of Music. In 1891, Booker T. Washington also packed the house with a speech that he gave on emancipation. But without rattling down all the different shows uh, of the 19th century, I did want to finish it up here by saying probably the greatest entertainer, one of the most popular entertainers of the late 19th century that did appear here was Edwin Booth, the brother of John Wilkes Booth, who continued his illustrious career in the theater long after his brother's despicable act. Um, He was really America's best-known actor, closely associated with the New York area. Um, In April of 1891, he announced his retirement and gave his final performance at the Academy of Music, of course doing his best-known role as Hamlet. This particular show was sold out for weeks at a time. It was witnessed, quote, by the greatest audience that had ever crowded the Academy. The orchestra was even moved out of the orchestra pit, and so they could put more chairs there. Mm. And the streets outside were filled with thousands and thousands of people. This was, in fact, his last performance because he died just two years later in 1893. So as Bam headed into the 20th century, it found itself, however, in a changed Brooklyn. Because Mm -hmm. as big as Edwin Booth's Hamlet performance was the city had really developed away from Brooklyn Heights in Mm -hmm. the 40 years that had passed since it opened. There were other neighborhoods that were fashionable, including Fort Greene, which had developed, right? right? Park Slope. And those areas were also more easily accessible by transportation than Brooklyn Heights. Because you now had elevated trains, and then soon the subway would also link Brooklyn with Manhattan. Not to mention the street trams that were running as well. So times were not necessarily that good around 1900 for the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Things got much worse on November 30th, 1903, when there was a major fire that burned Bam to the ground. The whole thing happened in the morning. It happened very quickly. Only, thankfully, a handful of people were in the building when it happened. They were, in fact, preparing for a banquet to be held that night. And to put this into a grim perspective... Just about 30 years ago, um, in 1876, was the devastating fire at the Brooklyn Theater, which killed 278 people. That was two blocks away. And still fresh in people's minds. Sure. I mean, to see another gigantic theater burning down. So on the, on the morning of November 30th, 1903, there were a few caterers running around inside, getting ready for this big event that night. Men were working on the wiring. They were fixing, in fact, a giant welcome sign that was made up in incandescent light bulbs. And a fuse had blown out on it, and they were trying to repair that wiring. At 8.47 in the morning, a burst of flames appeared over the stage and immediately spread across the curtains. Wow, the final performance was dramatic. That was at 8.47, and it wasn't until 9.06, about 20 minutes later, that the first water was actually shot at these flames. So you can imagine, with a giant curtain in a theater, what 20 minutes of flame can do. Within 20 minutes of the first spark, the auditorium was, according to the Times, a seething sea of flames. The flames shot up above the auditorium. The roof collapsed down inside. Meanwhile, along Montague Streets, there were all of these prominent businesses, financial institutions, and the government buildings that were along the way. Of course, they immediately saw this giant fire. They, they were packing up their valuables and clearing mm-hmm. out, panicked that this fire was going to spread to them. 
Look, in the end, the fire was extinguished, but the entire building was gone, and only the giant walls remained as a sort of ruin. The New York Times noted that Brooklynites, quote, felt a sense of personal loss because the building had been destroyed, of Mm -hmm. course. But yet, quote, general relief was expressed that the old building was gone, for it had all but outlived its usefulness, was no longer centrally located, and had long been under grave suspicion as a fire trap. Oh. And because, of course, if it had happened at night, it could have been far, far worse. Ironically, Greg, when it burned, when the news got to traders, people had stock in the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Mm-hmm. When the word hit the traders that the building had burned down, the stock of the Brooklyn Academy of Music actually shot up. <laughs> it became more valuable because it meant that that land would finally be for sale. In the meantime, see, since it had been constructed in 1861, that land on Montague Street, had the value had shot oh, through the roof, mm-hmm. but they weren't filling the seats. So this represented a new opportunity for BAM to sell off the land move to a, a better spot and build something that would attract newer, bigger crowds. Talk about looking at the bright side. So a group of old Brooklyn families got together, and the patrons of BAM, they formed a, quote, committee of 100 in order to raise $1 million for the construction of a new, better-located academy. And they chose fashionable Fort Green. Mm-hmm. And the spot that they chose on the south side of Lafayette Avenue be- between Ashland Place and St. Felix Street, they thought that this was a much better location. It was not just a more fashionable neighborhood, but it was better located. You had all the public transportation off Flatbush and, of course, Atlantic Avenue right there. Some major thoroughfares. It wasn't tucked away on Montague Street. Right. So the group invited 10 architectural firms to compete for the project, and they chose unanimously the architects Hertz and Talent, who were... (laughs) It's in the name. Right. They weren't hurting for talent. <laughs> they, they were the, the preeminent American theatrical architects at the time. They had done some major theaters. They, they designed the New Amsterdam Theater, uh, the Lyceum, and the Folie Berger, which is today's Helen Hayes Theater. So they knew their stuff. They knew how to construct a stage, how to make a grand foyer, etc., And they designed the Brooklyn Academy of Music in the neo-Italian Renaissance style, which was very popular at around 1900. Their structure would contain two halls, a concert house, which would seat 1,400 people, and the larger opera house, which would seat 2,200 people. Uh, There would also be a large foyer, or foyer, an entry (laughs) hall, Along, um, which would extend all the way along Lafayette Avenue. Which, for anyone who goes to BAM, knows that that entrance hall is so lively. Their original plans were to construct the exterior uh, facade in marble, but of course that proved a little bit costly, (laughs) so they switched to cream and tan bricks. On the ground floor from Lafayette Avenue, you'll see five doors on the ground, topped by a series of five giant arched windows on the second floor, which are beautiful. And the whole thing was topped by a very elaborate terracotta cornice. When I say elaborate, I mean that there were cherubs, there were 22 full-size lion heads in this decorative cornice, which would not survive. Right. It would it would deteriorate in the 20th century and would have to be removed. Now, do you know about the minor controversy about some of the cupids that were on this particular cornice? There was some, there was some controversy because some in the community had heard that the cupids would be nude, would be undraped. 
cupids. Um, so the during construction, they had to actually come out and say, no, the cupids will be all clothed. It'll be okay. You can bring your children. They will not see cupid nudity. The concert house opened on October 1st, 1908. And the Opera House opened the next month in November. And so the first performance at the brand new Academy of Music was, strangely enough, a performance by the Metropolitan Opera Company, uh-huh. who frequently performed at the Academy of Music. Geraldine Farrar and Enrico Caruso, who I'll also bring up here in a second, uh, were featured in the cast performing Faust. That started them off on the right foot because through much of the early 20th century, they had the greatest, highest pinnacle of classical artists, opera performers, opera troops that came through here. Some of the most legendary voices and conductors, Toscanini, Mahler, Rachmaninoff. Like you said, not hurting for talent. Not hurting for talent. (laughs) In an eerie parallel to the Edwin Booth final performance, Enrico Caruso... The great tenor. Who lived at the Plaza Hotel. You might remember when we did our Plaza Hotel podcast. Um, On December 11th of 1920, he was on the stage at the Academy of Music performing The Elixir of Love in the lead role of Nimarino. And he was preparing to get out there and he started coughing and he coughed blood into his handkerchief. He thought he felt better. He went out onto the stage, and he basically had a throat hemorrhage. The curtains basically crashed down. The show ended right there at Act One. Which would be horrifying. If you were in the audience, can you imagine seeing that? He basically went on to have just maybe a handful of incredibly weakened performances at other places. And then he died the following year. So this was really the first sign of something very seriously wrong with him. Perhaps the world's most famous actress of the day, Sarah Bernhardt, mm-hmm. uh, by this time famously known for having a wooden leg. Right. But still much lauded for her performances around the world. Oh, yeah. I mean, she acted through this whole thing. She was a consummate professional. Well, she began the last leg of her... The last... The last portion of her American you, tour you really couldn't resist, could <laughs> in you? 19, it's an accident um, in 1917 she started that here at BAM what greatly developed uh, with the with the new Academy of Music here were the great dancers of the age that were brought through here the mother of modern dance performed here frequently Isidore Duncan she would find a welcome home at BAM performed a great many times I would say she was one of the most influential voices to the whole kinds of performances that came through here because at this point the academy was really sort of choosing dance was it not as as its particular niche as oh well? yeah being almost the inventor or the innovator of modern dance duncan set the path for many other uh, performers of her type including of course martha graham who'd be there in 1954 right ruth st dennis performed here a little bit earlier C- correct now i do have a funny story about isadora I, I hate to sort of bring her up and then bring kind of like weird story, but that's what we do here on the Bowery Boys. In 1922, she was dancing to a piano accompaniment. It was just her on the stage, packed house. I don't know if it happened before the show or during the show, but she had received word that Sarah Bernhardt, who was in Paris, was dying, was in her final moments, that she just heard this. And so Duncan was a huge fan and admirer of Sarah Bernhardt. So she determined at that very moment that she was going to do a funeral dance 
for Miss Bernhardt right there on the spot, which theoretically sounds like a really amazing thing to have witnessed. Well, and very progressive. I can imagine this sort of breaking barriers. Right. So after a few minutes of this, for some reason that we don't know, the pianist suddenly stopped playing and ran off the stage. So Miss Duncan kind of paused for a second and then kept dancing without a musical accompaniment, Mm -hmm. to an ever more confused audience, bewildered audience. And then at a certain point, she just stopped, and then she ran off the stage. (laughs) It would turn out, by the way, that Sarah Bernhardt would not die for several months. (laughs) And when was this performance? In 1922. Wow. But it it does sound very (laughs) avant-garde. Well, indeed. Very very (laughs) avant-garde. No guard. No guard. But there, of course, be a great many non-musical speakers and performances that would make their home here. Right, because something that we hadn't mentioned, we're, we're talking about all the dance performances and the operas, but at about the same time, around 1900, the Brooklyn Institute of Arts and Sciences merged with the Academy, and they, they were really focused on bringing in speakers and very noteworthy lecturers, including many presidents. Well, probably the most well-known non-musical performance to happen on the stage of the Academy of Music was Franklin Delano Roosevelt on the eve of America's entry into war in November of 1940. But also, it was his own re-election was looming large. It was just a mm. few days before he was re-elected. So as a result of all of this, it was the largest audience in Academy of Music history. There were huge packed audience inside, 6,000 people outside just listening in. And then there were dozens of people like added onto the stage around FDR. Other speakers included Jacob Reese, Thomas Mann, Helen Keller and Ann Sullivan did a lecture here. Marionette and puppet shows. In 1940s, there was something, the Snow Follies, featuring a skating extravaganza with ski jumping. So (laughs) things are also kind of veering off the slopes here. Right. right (laughs) Very good one. In the 1920s, even, was the very first time that films were shown at the Academy of Music. And in great tradition, uh, the films would even be a little alternative avant-garde themselves. Now, I'm not sure if this is the very first film, but the first one that I could find was in 1921, and it was a Swedish film called The Fairy of Solbakken, and then a Norwegian film called The Home Life of a Stork. So a grand tradition of foreign films, I mean, like decades before Ingmar Bergman would show him, have a film here. But back to those skiers and the slopes. Mm-hmm. By the way, I doubt that that was an indoor activity. It might have been outdoors. Perhaps it was in a nearby park or something. Though they're, right. But they were trying, in many ways, to pack both of their, their houses. They had a lot of seats that they could fill. And times were getting kind of rough in Brooklyn in late 40s and 50s. Yeah, they were having some financial hardships. And not just BAM, but also Brooklyn, of course, was, was experiencing a lot of middle-class flights, there was the Navy Yard that was shutting down, breweries were closing, even the Dodgers left town. Yeah, it was a rough time for the borough. In 1936, the the Brooklyn Institute of Arts and Sciences would actually take over the Brooklyn Academy of Music proper. Right. Uh, Now, which meant more lectures, but they they were still putting mm -hmm. on musical performances. Now, did we mention that the Brooklyn Institute of Arts and Sciences is essentially today the Brooklyn Museum? And so then in 1952, the Institute then gave BAM 
to the city of New York. The city, in turn, leased it back to the Institute for $1 a year. So the city is basically bailing out BAM and the Brooklyn Institute of Arts and Sciences. Right. The city's coming to the rescue here. Right. And when I say the city, and we're talking the 1950s here, I mean, of course, in one of his many jobs, Robert Moses, um, who then approved funds to renovate the structure. I'm so glad you brought him into this podcast. I, yeah, right? I mean, he, he has a little involvement around this time. He, it was during this period that the building is then renovated, and then that freeze is taken down around this period, around the 1950s. Though one could argue that it was also because of Moses and the Brooklyn Queens Expressway that was like tearing through different Brooklyn neighborhoods, mm-hmm. that the area was experiencing hardship <laughs> as well. But what the Academy really needs at this point, now that it has a little bit more financial protection um, and it has these other institutions helping it out, it needs a strong, steady voice to make it relevant. Right, to make it relevant to a Brooklyn that had changed. And to, to America, to the American art scene, really. And in 1965, the, the Academy commissioned a study just to figure out how to move forward, given the difficulties in Brooklyn. And they concluded that, quote, for the borough of Brooklyn, there emerges a choice of heroic proportions, either a grand redesign, cost what it may, for a physical, educational, and artistic renewal, or a backward step toward a cultural wasteland. So believe it or not, they chose for the wasteland. No, I'm joking. They, they, they might stage they might, they the might, wasteland. Yeah, they might mount a production of the right. wasteland. I think they have. They decided, of course, it was better to look for ways to innovate artistically, even if that put them at risk of a, of a pretty big financial setback. So two years later, in 1967, they did something major when they appointed Harvey Lichtenstein, the director of the Academy. Now, I apologize if his name is Lichtenstein. 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 (laughs) Why don't we just call him Harvey? And that was his name. Yeah. Now, Harvey would be at the helm here for more than 30 years, and he did probably more than anybody else in the history of the Brooklyn Academy of Music to shape its future and to put it on a sound foundation. He immediately set out to find artists who were challenging the artistic norms and who weren't finding enough money from other quarters, especially across the river. Well, I find that up until this point, there's not a a unique voice to the Academy of Music here, and and he really sets... The tone and here. he was reaching out to avant-garde dance companies like Merce Cunningham for Cunningham's first New York season, along with Twyla Tharp, Robert Wilson's avant-garde composers were brought in, experimental artists who found a stage at BAM and, and support in the 1960s and the late 60s and throughout the early 70s. Manhattan had a lot of venues for what I guess more traditional forms of dance and from music and so he and some avant-garde obviously but he was able to set bam apart by focusing on this on these kinds of art he also did something that seems obvious to us today but might not have been so obvious then he looked at the actual neighborhood surrounding bam which had changed quite a bit since 1908 and saw that the neighborhood was mostly african-american and hispanic communities and decided that BAM needed to do a better job of reaching out to these communities, finding programming that would be interesting to these communities, to really be a force in that neighborhood. They certainly wouldn't have had, for instance, an African dance festival before 1970. He opened the door for those kinds of things to happen. And started the Jamaican National Dance Theater Company, which led to BAM's Dance Africa series, 
He brought in the Alvin Ailey dance company, Bill Jones, started the Dance Black America Festival in the 1970s. And in 1981, he created the Next Wave series to give a stage to emerging New York City artists. And the Next Wave still happens today. Like, this is a festival that's still operating. Now, in terms of business, this all started to work. Also, in 1973, they, they made a strategic marketing decision, Greg. They decided to adopt the acronym BAM. Did you know, Greg, in their ballroom, the ballroom had been leased out to a prep school. So there was even a school that was that was meeting inside. So they kicked out the school and transformed that into what they called the Le Perc space, which was a 300 seat theater, which is the site of today's BAM Cafe. Where you can hear jazz, pop music, rock music. They have a lot of alternative music acts there. Now, I don't know why I always get to talk about the disasters at BAM, but in <laughs> 1977 on Labor Day, BAM, and then it hit them. Another disaster. Oh, in, but not, no, no fire this time. No fire. However, it was just a month before the fall season opened in 1977 when a 30-inch water main broke and thousands and thousands of gallons of water flooded into BAM's two performance spaces. As if that wasn't bad enough, an oil tank overturned in the basement, and which held 15,000 gallons of oil, which flooded into the whole mess. Out on Ashland Place, 100 feet of pavement caved in. And w- within hours, the water was 50 feet deep. So you can imagine like the huge amount of damage to the props, to, the, to both of the theater spaces. Helen Hayes, the great actress, led an emergency effort to raise funds for what she called the Big Mop-Up. And amazingly, they raised money and they got things cleaned up, dried off, and ready to open in time for the 1977-78 season. Wow. I can literally picture Helen here with like a life preserver and a mop (laughs) going in there and (laughs) single-handedly cleaning the place up. Ugh. Notably in the 80s, in 1987, they created BAM's, uh, their Majestic Theater, which would be renamed the Harvey, Harvey uh-huh. right? And 10 years later, in 1998, BAM opened up the Rose Cinema with four screens that show classics and new releases and f- have film festivals like you mentioned. So that opened in, in the late 90s. I will, on the blog, I'll have a couple links over there, but you can find them yourself. I believe it's at BAM.org. You can find more history on BAM's website. On our blog, BarryBoysPodcast.com, I will have some pictures of just sort of a survey of the history that we have discussed, some of the people. I'll try to look up the Athenaeum, the Athenium. Yes. The, I'll, look the, I'll look this up. And there is on YouTube some video footage of the original BAM's fire on Montague Street. Oh, wow. Yeah. You can also join us on Facebook and on Twitter at Bowery Boys. Now, one final word here before we go. We are almost to our fifth year anniversary, and we have been doing our editing and recording on a little Macintosh that we have been using it since the very first show. It is true. And today, this is the final show that this Macintosh will be joining us. We are upgrading to some fi- some finer technology, but no finer than this computer. It, is, it has done us well these are, past few years. We are retiring Greg's laptop. You are retiring it. And to celebrate, we're going to re-record <laughs> the Eurocheapo advertisement at the beginning of the show. So all sorts of things are going to sound different the next time you hear us which i think we've mentioned this previously but 
Full disclaimer: We roped my sister into recording that <laughs> when she was when she happened to pass through the studio while we were recording once, and we made her do it about ten times to do it as <laughs> as fast as she to hit the right cadence. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Elizabeth, Tom's sister, for the many years of 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 <laughs> that as our preface, and thank you to our little Mac Mac, and most of all, thank you to our listeners. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost.